Hey, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on the deep dive of what's happening in the hospitality industry. If you're new here, hi, welcome back. A little bit about me. I've been covering the D.C. food, wine, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. You know the list, are you on it.com, the online e-zine that tells you absolutely everything happening in the D.C. metro area. Of course, you listen to Foodie and the Beast every Sunday. My husband David and I have been doing the only food and wine variety show here in the D.C. market for the last 15 years. You follow me and all my travels and all my eatings at NYCCI, N-E-L-L-I-S, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Threads, and of course, Industry Night, this show that has been on air for seven years, but just in the last year, we've got our new YouTube component. So thanks so much for joining us. And here is the best part. I have my residency this month here at The Point in downtown D.C., um, that's why you hear all the noise and all the fun, because we're in a real restaurant where life is really happening. Um, so I love it here. It is gorgeous out today. We should really be doing this on the patio. That's what I thought. Owner of The Point is Greg Kasten. Um, you may know him because he owns a lot of restaurants here in the D.C. market. But he also is the guy behind ProFish, one of the biggest fish distributors on the East Coast, Right. I like to think that way. Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about how a guy from the fish business gets into the restaurant business. So a guy from the fish business works as a crewman on a fish boat and as a, a, a helper in a restaurant. And he grows up mixing both of them together and realizing the love that he has for both. I was born in a small town just south of Boston, worked on a lobster boat. And I worked in a fast food restaurant flipping burgers, and I love the challenge of both. A lot of, a lot of very similar things go on in those two industries. But I'm sort of curious when it comes to fish, because when you started in the fish biz, it's very different than how it is today. The rules, the regulations, where fish comes from, the requirements of, uh, you know, uh, farmed versus wild caught and then you have sustainability like how do you take that sort of behemoth of like sustainability and employ that in what you're doing and what you're selling to people you know that's a great question because fish is really really complicated you mentioned farm versus wild just in the last decade farmers now 55 percent of sales but when i first started pro fish in 1986 Farm sales were probably 5 or 7%. Um, and then along with that farm is how you farm and are you doing it uh, sustainably and in a way that takes care of the environment around you. Right, stewardship, you. right? And not just stewardship in terms of clean water, but stewardship in terms of how you might affect other species or even other um, uh, uh, raw materials. Like in, in Chile, they have a an argument with the, the lumber industry and the fishing industry and how they can work together, ironically, because of the sawdust that is created in the mill. Really interesting stuff you learn along the way and how integral a part seafood is in the everyday life of so many people worldwide, not just harvesting it, but getting it all the way to your plate where you see it. Well, that's the part that I, I always find the most interesting. You know, we're so, especially in this country, we're so far away from our food, right? We just, we're not near the farms. Even if you go to a farmer's market, we're not 
We're not where agriculture is. We're certainly not where aquaculture is. So how, where is the disconnect in that story? Or how do you tell that story, especially through the fish you're serving in a restaurant? Well, first of all, the customer always wants and always knows fresh fish first, not fresh fish. I don't, the best restaurants are, are run by people that know how to recognize good fish when it comes in the door and mm -hmm. are not afraid to tell their fish purveyor, hey, I can't take this, it's not up to my standards. Mm. And what happens in those standards can be anywhere in 10 different places in the chain of supply. Mm -hmm. And so you comment that it's not local, right? What, what is the definition of locally harvested seafood? Is it 50 miles away? Is it 200 miles is away? Is it just from the USA, right? Like and, and so you really, it would be impossible to eat just local fish without truly restricting your diet. You might have six species out of the Chesapeake Bay mm -hmm. that are prolific that, you know, porgy spot, uh, rockfish, um, sure. flounder, but, but you wouldn't get American lobster or you wouldn't get warm water lobster or you wouldn't get king crab leg or, or you wouldn't get, really, you'd get crab meat, but not enough to sustain the, the desire that's out there. So as you expand and you want to get at the best stuff, you have to go find out where that is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the cost factor comes from the foreign nations and the foreign folks, and by that I mean in Europe, wanting to buy the source product. And the, as close to the source and as soon as it is source as possible. And that's what the real drive in seafood is. Uh, amazingly, seafood follows money. I mean, sure. the, the cost of money, if the, the British pound is is a dollar twenty to the American dollar, then they're gonna bring the herring over here and sell it here because they're getting more money. But if it's eighty cents to the dollar, they might leave it there. I believe I have that backwards. But you get my meaning. I know, I know what you're it's saying. It's arbitrage. It's all about the currency. And so like as we were coming out of the end of the pandemic, the restaurant scene in France is crazy for American lobster. But their sales were anemic. You could buy lobster for nothing, really. Oh, well, then what's the, right? From and a today, sales perspective, right? But today, lobsters double the price it was, and 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 that's because the European demand has come back and put pressure on the. There's only one place in the world you can get it from, right. you know, Canada to New Jersey, right, or thereabouts. So, um, same thing with 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 us and the seafood. We're always just looking for that right buy at that source. And then every chef is looking for something new or something really elite, right? Everybody likes crab meat. Well, now there's Venezuelan crab meat, there's Vietnamese crab meat, there's Indonesian crab meat, mm -hmm. there's Alabama crab meat, there's um, Louisiana crab meat, there's Maryland meat, there's Virginia. And I could spend 15 minutes telling you the slight differences Between in all. each one. But some of these chefs have figured out which one they want and only want on their menu. And I think the customer base can end up relying on that consistency. And that's really what our game is all about, is providing what the chef wants and making sure that he's educated in how he wants it. All right. It's always great to have Greg Kasten join me for a couple minutes. And um, as I do on every show, I tell you about where I've been and what I've been doing. And uh, if you are on the list or you want it.com, where I've been and what I've been doing is on that calendar. And you can be doing the same fun and delicious things as I am. Okay, so let's see. Oh, I was at uh, Bourbon Steak at the Four Seasons on Friday night for the annual Georgetown Wine and Dine. 
Michael Mina, celebrity chef, brings all his favorite uh, friends into town. Adam Sobel, Nina Compton, Michael White. You get the draft. They were all in town, all cooking for this annual event that's really fun. A lot of wine um, information, incredible wines being poured. Wynn Robertson, who you know really well, he was pouring me crook all night long. And it was just a party. The dinner was filled with like famous names and faces. Linda Carter was there on Yang, Aaron Kokomo. Like, it's just so much fun. So don't miss it next year because it is an annual event. And then as if the Four Seasons wasn't fancy enough on a Friday, I went to the Pendry at the Wharf on a Saturday because there was another chef-led event. This one was to raise money for um, DC Central Kitchen. Um, Barry Coslow, who does a lot of work with DC Central Kitchen and is the chef at the Flora Flora at the Pendry Hotel, brought together a bunch of area chefs to do a chef's giving. So all the chefs there were tasked with doing a Thanksgiving themed meal, but not Thanksgiving. Anyway, it was really tons of fun. And let me tell you who was there. Kevin Tian was there. And quite frankly, I thought he made the dish of the evening. Um, Jay Zwaniak was there. Juan Carlo from La Famosa. Anyway, it was just a really fun cast of people. They had a great group of people there, and it just made it lots of fun. So, um, so much more going on, but I'm going to save it for my next show um, because I've got two great people here with me now, and I want to get to the show. So, about three weeks before the world shut down, uh, in 2020 when COVID happened, I got invited to a dinner at Cranes mm -hmm. that was opened by Chef Pepe Moncayo, uh, who, like, there was a lot of buzz around him because he had come in from Singapore and he was doing some really interesting things, a combination, because he's from Barcelona, a combination of Japanese cuisine and Spanish cuisine. And he was putting it together in this really funky environment on the plate. So it was very exciting. We had this amazing dinner. And then, of course, three weeks later, it all went to hell. But here's what's interesting about Chef. So he's born and raised in Barcelona. He has a pretty storied career path because he does go to culinary school, but he really pops around the region and works with very famous chefs, uh, a lot of them Michelin starred, a lot of restaurants Michelin starred. He himself is Michelin starred. And somehow he winds up in Singapore. Oh, wait, I know how you wind up in Singapore. Chef Santi, right? All right. Yes. So he gets to Singapore and uh, then in 2013 opens up his own restaurant called BAM. And that is at somewhere in there in Singapore, he meets his wife who's sitting here with me, Aisha, who really doesn't want to be here, but we're forcing her <laughs> to tell her story today because I think it's important. Anyway, they, in 2019, they come to D.C. They bring their four kids. They leave three. three at the time? Yeah. Okay. They leave Singapore. Mm -hmm. They come to D.C., mm -hmm. which I'm, I'm struggling to figure that part out. But <laughs> they leave Singapore. They come to D.C., and that's when they open up Cranes. And then in, since that time, they've opened up another restaurant called Jimwa. Singapore. Singapore. Mm -hmm. um, and two different restaurants, two and two different things. But not only are they husband and wife team, but they also, they're partners in life and partners in business as well. So I really wanted to sort of bring that dynamic to the table. So thank you so much for joining me today and you as well. So Chef, let's just do a little background because I'd love to know a little bit about how you got into cooking. Um, you know, growing up in Barcelona, what was the vibe then? What was the feel then? Because San Sebastian now is just like epicenter of dining. Was it did you grow up in that in that sort of whirlwind? No. 
Okay. I am the only cook in the family. There is no industry-related relative at all. Uh-huh. And um, how my history went, I have a family of five. I have an elder sibling and a younger sister. Uh-huh. When I was 13 years old, my mom passed away. Okay. So my father works in a factory. He don't know how to fry an egg. Okay. My brother was going for the army that very time that my mom passed away, and my sister was six at that time. So I was appointed executive chef of the family, hmm. and I started going to do shopping. I started cooking at home. I bought some. There's a famous TV chef called Carlos Arguiñano. I bought the book. I started cooking at home, trying. Those recipes served today, probably would, people will trash me very much. Okay. But that actually got us to survive and to thrive. And, um, but you fact, were feeding people I, for I'm sustenance, very proud. I'm very proud. right? Like I'm very proud you. Of what I did. You um, stepped up. Absolutely. But it, but it must have ignited a, well, a passion in two ways, right? You saw what happened mm-hmm. when you put food on the table, right? And what it did for your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in hard times, and what it probably did for you. I just started loving it, and uh, I, while I was doing this, I keep studying, and when it was time to choose what college career I wanted to do, mm-hmm. there was nothing that I was interested in, absolutely nothing. So I thought, why I don't do culinary school? Mm. And that's when I... That's when you went to culinary school. And so when you went to culinary school, was Mm -hmm. there like a path? Because, I mean, your resume is just filled with like flashy names and incredible people. Mm -hmm. And was was that part of your trajectory? You were like, no, I want to work with these people. Or did you just wind up there? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. I love this. I wanted to cook. And actually, I went to culinary school and I failed miserably. Oh, my God. I love that. So I, went I mean, to, I'm glad you weren't my kid because I would kill you. But okay, go ahead. It was an expensive one. So, yeah. But anyways, I was working for it myself. And um, I started culinary school. And because I had high studies, it put me in a course of managing restaurants and something. And I wanted to cook. So mm-hmm. there you were two weeks in the practicing in the restaurant of the school and two weeks in the classroom, getting marketing, English, French, all of the above that to me in that moment was unnecessarily boring. So sure. I will wake up myself on the class and everybody was laughing. Okay. I was no interest in that. So I give up on the school and the school had a hotel that were teammates uh-huh. were going to train, no? the school, the scholarship, but you were going to train there. So the chef de cuisine or the executive chef actually in the hotel, Pepe, you are not going anywhere. Start working with me. And oh. I started doing breakfast and scrambled eggs, like really super simple. Uh-huh. But funny enough, I ended up being the trainer of my classmates. Really? <laughs> that is stupid, yeah. I love that. That so, is stupid. So you go from there, but let's talk a little bit. Like, how did you wind up working in these super high-end, mm-hmm. you know, I hate using the term fancy because it just sounds silly, but like you went to these elevated spaces. Yes. So what was it that you were learning at those spaces? How end up there is bad recommendation. Okay. I, I always say the same thing and I don't know, I never did a resume in my life, mm-hmm. never. Always about working somewhere and someone recommend me to the next restaurant. And there was this moment I was working in the casino of Barcelona and the director of operations, Mr. Santi actually, his name was Santi. Right? He told me, what's an old man? Pepe, with your talent, you need to go to work to this restaurant. I say, which one is that? Right. And there was this very iconic 
it's been forever their restaurant in Barcelona called Via Veneto. It's a Michelin star. A super classic Frenchy Catalan restaurant. And I remember he sent me there for an interview. The kitchen was underground. Yeah. I went inside and the feeling was something different. It, it really you step in something that you feel an aura of uh, stress and uh, intensity and bodies moving fast and focus and the chef is screaming like crazy and say, wow, I want to work here. Well, <laughs> I would be like, oh my God, get me out of here. It did not, it did not strike fear in you. No. You were like, no, I want that. Because there is this thing that is very nice. Uh, what you see at the beginning, no? you ignite something passionate about cooking, the <laughs> feeling of getting that emotional response yes. to what you are serving to someone. But there is a part of it which is the belonging to something, mm. belonging to a crew, the adrenaline of service, the rush hour, all those things are addictive, sorry, they're addictive and you really love it. We love Yeah, because operations. it's a high, right? I we always... are operation people and we love the operation. Yeah, the managing, the financing, all of those are parts of the business that you need to take care of. But mm -hmm. what we really love, what gets you hooked, is service, is hospitality, is delivering Exactly. So you're front of house. Yes. So where did you start in the industry? So I have a very humble background. So okay. I started in an Italian family restaurant. Mm -hmm. In Singapore. In Singapore, yes. Mm -hmm. So before moving to a Spanish restaurant where we first worked together. Okay. Yes. And then soon after we opened back. So everything that day we've been working together. I think for the past decade mm -hmm. we've been working side by side. So when you got into the industry, was it just a job or you like, oh, because like I love hearing how he how your passion grew, right? And what you did in order you didn't know what you were doing, but then you got there and it it created a real passion in Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yes. Did that happen for you? No, not really. For me, in the beginning, it was just like a job. Mm -hmm. So the, that passion kind of grows inside you the more that you spend time at work. Mm -hmm. So that was happening. Yeah. Okay. And then, so how did you two meet? My, I was, I went to Singapore to open a restaurant for my mentor. Okay. We opened in 2010. Yes, 2010. 2010. Seven, right here. And my... <laughs> And my mentor passed in 2011. Okay. So the restaurant is starting to go a bit mm. south. And, but we have very regular customers. The first customer that invested on me was the Italian family. Yeah, I oh my God. So, yes. so, it's like the stars totally aligned. Yeah, they put us together. Okay. They put us together. So that's how we connect each other. Actually, mm -hmm. the first time, no, actually, the first time I saw her was in the restaurant of the Italian family. Uh -huh. I noticed her, she never noticed me. Aww. And the second time I met her, it because they brought her for lunch to Santi, Singapore. Yes. Oh. And that's when I really like, oh my God, yes. who's this lady? So did you start a relationship before BAM or after BAM? Before. Before BAM. Was the family that introduced you like upset because you left? <laughs> well, they were upset because we actually started dating. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like bit. a rule of them because I, she was an employee. Right. I was the owner. For them, that was a no-no thing. Right. And who, who are you to put walls to love? It's, it's, it's not possible. You can put whatever rule. You can write whatever procedures. Right. Love happens. Love happens. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, let's talk about Bam because that really brings you here to the states. 
what were what were what were you doing in Bam? I don't think a lot of people are. You know, Singapore is a huge destination now. Yes. But in 2013, I, I don't. It wasn't as a, a tra- as much of a travel destination as mm-hmm. other places in um, Asia, right? So what was that? You were on like at the infancy of the food and cultural revolution happening mm-hmm. in Singapore at that time. So what was happening there? What did, what was BAM? What were you doing? What were you? How were you evolving? Wow. Um, we were working in the Spanish restaurant and the name was Ola. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had this annoying customer coming every time with bottles of sake to the restaurant. And we were 100% traditional cuisine. Okay, Spanish. And we'll come with the sake, Pepe, this sake with your food goes so well. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. I, I never was attending to him, maybe. Okay. No, my food goes with wine. I'm Spanish, I'm Mediterranean. Right. What he's talking Urgent. about? Right. And one day he came to me and said, Pepe, you want to go to Japan? I said, what do you mean? I fly you, I pay for you. Come, join me. All right. Wow. So he flew me to Japan. We went to Tokyo. We took a bullet train to Sendai. And in Sendai, there is this super recognized, amazing sake brewery called Katsuyama. Mm-hmm. I went inside that temple, imagine, you know, samurai swords and the shield, everything. It's, you are like, oh my goodness. And suddenly I see in the back of the brewery a pizza flying. <laughs> say, oh, what? And shoom, again flying. A so, pizza? Yes. Yes. So, okay, I, I thought I misheard him. Imagine okay. that Japanese temple, no? And then. Uh, the owner of the brewery, Mr. Gihei Isawa, brought me to the back of the brewery, and there is an Italian restaurant and the world champion pizza yolo, which is a Japanese, yes. performing there. So that guy... I kind of wish I was there. That sounds amazing. That guy was a visionary, and he was doing the pairing of uh, sake with Italian traditional cuisine. Wow. He put me through the experience of trying that food versus champagne, wine, beer, and mm-hmm. sake, mm. and blew my mind. Okay. He blew my mind. So with that idea, I copied, mm-hmm. and I did the same in Singapore to open band, doing the Spanish tapas with sake. Okay. And Mr. Isawa came for the opening, trained our team with the sake pairing, how to experience it, how to do the best pairings. And that was the starting of it. But I started as Spanish with Japanese sake. And then the rest... Just sort of came was, together. Was organically. But so I'm sort of curious about that because when you came to the States, mm-hmm. what brought you both to the States? That should really be the question. Uh, you go? <laughs> so we went to find a new experience. Mm-hmm. So we've been working together in Singapore, so we want to branch out. So we want to see what is it on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Me personally, I never believe outside of Singapore. Okay. I was born and raised all my life spent in Singapore, so I uh-huh. said, why not, let's, let's try to, you know, mm-hmm. do something else in our life. So that's when we got approached to come here, and we decided to move the kids. Okay, now, here. had you ever been to the States? No, before the offer, no. Wow. We just came to explore. We, before we decided to move, we flew three times. Her and me to visit the city, we uh-huh. stay in different places, hotel. Airbnb, sure. explore the city, restaurants, and uh, we really thought that we can do something here. And you liked it? It's different. It's so different. It's, oh my god. Honestly, if I can just say one word, it's eye-opening for me. Personally, mm. I came from Singapore, which is a, a tiny red dot on the map, and to the other side of the world, which is so huge. Right. Country is big. 
And we came in during the Trump administration. There is a lot of protests going on and everything else. It's, the experience itself is very eye-opening. I bet. Yes. In, in Singapore, there is no right to protest. No, it's, that, a, that was the, it's a very strict, right? It's strict. Singapore is an amazing country. I have no doubt. We'll go back in the blink of an eye. We are happy there, but it's predictable, works perfect. You know what is going to happen. You get the good life, and we wanted to experience something for our family. And mm -hmm. I always say the same thing. Cranes can go south very quick because of the pandemic. You were there. Right. We never... There was a chance we never made it through, but if we, in 2021, we need to wrap our things and go back to Singapore, right. we will do it over and over and over because the impact as a family for us to grow has been perfect. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So how did you find running a business? I have questions for you for front of the house because it's so different here. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> then yes. over there. So you came to do cranes mm -hmm. with the idea of not just sake with Spanish cuisine, no. but Japanese and Spanish fusion. Correct. So for people who maybe haven't had the opportunity to see what you're doing, uh, what what does that mean? Is it using Japanese products and using Spanish techniques, a switch of it? What, how would you explain that? All of the above. Okay. So as I said, 2013, I opened them with a clear Spanish tapas with sake, mm -hmm. but then it went through our evolution. You get soaked by ingredients, I start using techniques, start mixing, experimenting. I was free to do as I please. And what Cranes is, is BAM 2.0. How I pick it up in, how I leave it in 2018, 2019, and continue here. What Cranes is, is not the same as BAM was. Cranes, me, Mm -hmm. The United States, right. working with different people, working with a different country, and mm -hmm. it's a very personal business. Okay. Well, I mean, that kitchen is enormous and beautiful. But that kitchen at Cranes, like, because you can, it's, if you're totally sitting at open. the right table, yeah. it is massive. I mean, it is a beautiful, beautiful yeah. kitchen. Um, so how did you evolve, like you had to evolve, and how did you evolve, like coming to a new country, opening up a restaurant, Really not knowing the vibe. You're right. When you came here, like, a lot going on. there was a lot going on. I mean, you know, listen, D.C. is a very blue, you know, they did not, D.C. and its environs did not like the occupant of the White House. And there was a lot of... No secrets. You know, <laughs> it was not easy for a lot of people. But, yeah, there was a lot of protests. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of issues. Do you know what I mean? So how did, but how did that translate into your how you ran the front of your house and the offering hospitality. Because um, the consumer here is very different, I would imagine, than the consumer in Singapore. You would say that, but for us, it's like it came naturally because we are used to being on the floor. So we treat everybody as the same. Uh -huh. so how we serve, how we serve in Singapore is the same thing that we do here. Okay. For me, the hardest thing would be is the keeping policy here. I oh. just don't... You don't get it. So what's the tipping policy in Singapore? In Singapore, we do service charge. And any cash tips or credit card tips, you can split equally. So over here, there is a percentage Right. front of the house only, and you're not the back of the house. It's very hard to be on the Well, I mean, really, 
the tipping issue is really specific to the United States. Yes. Because it's not like that almost anywhere else. Not that I know. No, me either. So it's very interesting. Um, and they're trying to change it here. Good luck. But, huh? Good luck. But it's... They even voted for it in D.C. They want to change yes. it. But then the diner comes in and is angry about it. Yes. It's very strange. Um, I think a service charge makes sense. I don't understand. I mean, when you travel, that's what it is. I mean, I just came back from Italy for two weeks. That's what you do. Correct. I don't know. It's a very hard very happy to change. I know there is leader in the industry that any mayor try to do it. And I know. If he cannot make something to change it, you really need to but I think align that, many things. To make I think for Danny Meyer, I think, and I'm, I can't speak for him, but I, I kind of wonder if he thought, well, if I do it and people follow, then it can be successful. But I, there just wasn't a... It wasn't like people saw him do it. Everybody sort of sat back to see what would happen as opposed to joining on. I think if more and more people did it, then it could be successful, you know? For us, knowing the amount of hourly rate our servers can make with tips yes. to absorb that cost coming from us, right. it will be impossible to sustain and at the same time if you cut that revenue that's making they will go out to some rest. So it's very, very, very it's freaking it's a lose lose. Yeah, And yet you decided to open up a singing restaurant. <laughs> I know after opening planes after all of that. So tell me a little bit about the second restaurant. The first restaurant it was as I say, PAM 2.0. Mm -hmm. This restaurant, Jiva Singapore, is a homage to Singapore. I lived there for many years. Mm -hmm. Born and raised. It's a, but there isn't, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I, there's not like Singaporean restaurants in this area. No, there is not. There is not. So, how would you best explain, like, what did you grow up on? What did you grow up eating? What is Singaporean cuisine? Well, for me, the Singaporean cuisine is, is mostly related to Malaysia. We have okay. all the neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. So it's more like a rice, chicken rice. We have the nasi which is a coconut rice. We also have been here from Thailand. Country, so we are used to like Tomyam flavor. And also, we have a lot of people migrating from China. So, we have Singapore is a melting pot. Okay, so there's a lot of a influences. Lot of but yet, what about sort of the access to the ingredients? Like, are there ingredients that are more indigenous to Singapore that sort of replaces maybe what somebody would use in China or what somebody would use um, in Vietnam? Um, I say that the cultures came along, and that's the, the, the good thing about Singapore. It were, even there is a style of cuisine that is the brand of all of them, which is called the Peranakan. You have the Indian, Malay, Chinese, and the Peranakan, which is a sum of all of them. Okay. So they work with the ingredients, they adapt to the place. What is hard is to find those ingredients that you find in Southeast Asia in here. That's what I was going to ask. That's the tricky part, but in okay. there, the cuisine is totally adapted to the environment. Mm. They cook what they have. It's, right. At the end of the day, 
the cuisine of Singapore is the cooking in the houses and the families in the is they cook what you get in the market. That's right. So, well, that's right. You know, because when you go when you travel to Barcelona, let's mm -hmm. say, um, there is a variety of interpretations of Spanish cuisine. Yes. Um, but the, I always kind of wonder, is this what, it's not what everybody's eating at home. You know, like Americans, we don't have a cuisine. Do you know what I mean? Really, like hamburgers, hot dogs, like, you know, what I grew up eating in my house was whatever my mom was cooking, you know, at a gourmet magazine or whatever. And that's how I cook. You know, I'm a, I cook all sorts of things, but nothing is, in, nothing that my mom made, except maybe for like the holidays, Nothing that my mom made like stays with me. Do you know what I mean? Whereas I think okay. if you grow up in if you grow up in Spain, there are dishes you made that your family made. It goes oh, back. Do you know what I mean? 100%. That are indigenous. I remember all the dishes my mother used to cook. Exactly. Absolutely. You know they're sort of indigenous. So, what did you take from your time in Singapore, and how did you add that to your menu? Here. Yes. Wow. Um, most of it. In fact, uh, what I, the whole reason to open this restaurant is that I love Singaporean cuisine. Mm -hmm. And when you don't find anyone representing that, mm -hmm. you see a niche, it's an opportunity to that and sure. share that love with people. No? She cooks at home. She is not going to say, but she cooks super good. Okay. And those, there is some dishes in the restaurant that are totally the recipe that she does at home. There is this uh, duck salted egg sauce that we do with shrimps and mm -hmm. curry leaves and chilies and a bit of lime which is exactly the way that we would cook it at home oh. and then there is interpretation of the dishes that you get back there no okay example a chicken rice which is the staple of singaporean cuisine yes. will be a poached whole chicken do not forget that singapore is a consistent 100 fahrenheit temperature right so they will poach the chicken and hang it for six hours room temperature and upon order, they will start chopping it and serving with a steamed so rice. So wait, I have to ask. So you poach it, a whole chicken. Yeah. I got that part. Yeah. You're gonna hang it like you would a, yeah, like a like a duck. Yeah. But where are you hanging it in your hat? Just like over your sink? At home, you will do that. But in the street food, they have the hanger there. Oh, they're just yeah. hanging on the window. You. Okay. What I'm, I'm what like I'm, thinking in your house, like next to like where is it hanging? What I'm trying to say. Is, yes. If I were to do exactly that recipe in here, yes, health department will shut. Uh, they down. would shut you down, of course. Right, right. So I do a sous vide chicken that resembles. You chef it up a bit, but you have I no choice. Exactly. You have no choice. Exactly. Okay. So what I'd love to know is, like, given that you're cooking it at home, mm -hmm. were there things that you said to him like, "I really miss X"? Like when you used to, the wow. two of you used to go out in Singapore. When you're oh like, my goodness. I miss, this is what I miss, this is what I need to see on the menu. I don't want to cook it, I want to go out for it. Were there things that you wanted to eat? Plenty, actually. Yes, actually. And not only Singaporean. Yeah, mm -hmm. not only Singapore, yes. Um, I think Singaporean, we are, it's so convenient in Singapore that where we live, we live, we, all of us live in an apartment, because mm -hmm. Singapore is a very small country. So we can just go down right. to the hawker and get anything we want for mm. like two fifty. Right. And we get a meal. So that's something that I really miss is that food culture. Mm -hmm. The freedom of just going down and get something, you know? Sure. Right in front of me. 
I mean, for a specific dish, I don't really have a specific dish that I miss mm-hmm. because I try to cook it myself. Mm. You know, because I understand that I might not be able to get it here. Right. So I always try to cook it myself at home. And do you, I know, so you said it's hard to get some ingredients. Are you finding it easier now no. to get ingredients or there is it just tough? Not, it's not possible and it's due to the demand. Mm. Yeah, sure. If suddenly I'm in, I'm in a food industry and I can right. sell 300 pounds of candle nuts. Right. I don't mind. I will fly them. I will sell them. Right. That's business. But if only me, I'm asking you to fly me two pounds of right. candle nuts from Singapore to sure. Here. Yeah, sure. You want them? Two thousand dollars a pound. Right. Of course. I mean, that's kind of you know. We're gonna later in the show. You and Greg and are gonna talk about business, and we're not gonna have time. But I'd love to talk about ingredients. You mm-hmm. know, like what is the fish that you're eating in Singapore? And obviously, you can't always serve that here because. Of, you know what I mean? Or just certain, just because people don't know it, so mm-hmm. they're not going to order it. I mean, Americans are pretty finicky. There are the, uh, there, there are the adventurous eaters, but then there are those who like, no, I want my salmon. I want my Maryland brew crab. I mean, it's silly. I think in grains, people that come to grains, it's actually adventurous. Okay, good. Yeah. It's an educated I, I, I consumer. Feel, I feel that way. Eh? I mm-hmm. don't, people try. But what about dishes. a Jimla? Because that's a Tyson's. That's a different animal. Yeah. That's really a different animal. The crowd, the demand, the expectation. It, it's totally a different animal. Isn't it wild? If you cross the river, you're in a different world. I really. know. That's it's why I don't cross the river often. Totally. Um. <laughs> but yeah, it's a different animal. Okay. Let's. What I'd love to do is talk about as a husband and wife team. So my husband and I do a different show together. And um, it's really a balance when you work with your spouse even a little bit, but you guys work all the time together. How do you guys balance working front of the house and back of the house and working at your house to get, like, what's the balance? How do you make that work? Because I, my husband and I sometimes want to kill each other. You don't um, seem like that kind of person. She seems a lot more easygoing than I am. Oh, it's absolutely the contrary. She's the boss. Well, I, I didn't say she wasn't the boss. I just said she seemed easygoing. An easygoing boss. She's an uh, iron fist. Okay. It's, yeah, you can say that. It's iron fist. I come from Singapore. Hey, I come from New Jersey. I don't know what that means, but like, you know, I'm a bossy babe. Huh? We, it means that we are very street. She's a okay. tiger mom. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. you're yes. t- okay, so you're strict. And so that, that translates to your business and how you want to run the business? It's true. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Like, oh, yeah. So, okay. But how do you guys relate at the restaurant? Because, you know, sometimes the front of house and back in house, uh, the outsider would think they'd have to work together yeah, in true. order to Absolutely. be successful. But sometimes there's a lot of contention between the two. So how do you blend the two so that it's positive? That's a good one because something that I receive from our coworkers or employees or team members is how good is the relationship in the restaurant between back and front of the house? Mm. Because we know what is each other's expertise. I do the cooking, she will give me a feedback if she don't like something right, right away, no question. But I understand that she needs to do, she takes care of a part and I take care of another part. And mm-hmm. even though our responsibilities crosses, mm-hmm. we know which one needs to do which one. 
and now it's we have a very large team. So it's well, I was going to say we don't stay that close because we have a lot. I mean, how many people are working at Jimwa? In Jimwa, around sixty people. That's a large team. Mm -hmm. And what about at Cranes? Close to ninety to hundred people. Yes. But when we opened Bam, it was me and two guys in the kitchen. Uh huh. She and two guys in the front of the house. It was a thousand square foot restaurant That's with, tiny. 20, yes. with 20 seaters. We can do 120 every night. And that really was she and me. A lot of tension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet. Well, because you were bumping into each other. Oh, totally different. And there was, because it was too small. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things I always talk about, we have to wrap this up, but in, in especially in this area, because all the buildings are new, the restaurant spaces are so I mean, look at the space we're in. It's massive. Yes. This is big. Massive, yes. massive, massive. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it always gives me a little bit. It makes my heart. I was like, they can be able to put enough people in here. Like, it, you know, it's scary to me to see a space this size. I know they do, but um, you know, it's just sort of this bigger is better mentality, mm -hmm. which I think is um, really interesting. And just to add to that, I think at home we don't talk too much about work. Yeah. When we are off day, we. Naturally, we just kind yeah, of shut off. Natural. It's not that it's a pack or any agreement that we have. We just shut off. It's right. family time. We spend time with the kiddos. And... Something just happens. Right. Then you thought about work, and then you just... Get it, it out. out. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it just naturally happens. It's just without meaning. Right. Well, no, listen, sometimes you have to... I have a rule. My husband likes to talk business or money. He likes to talk about money, like what's in the bank and stuff like that. My rule is once you cross a threshold into the bedroom, nope, no math, no business, no nothing. I just, I don't want to hear about it. That's a good. There good. has to be, a, there has to be yeah. boundaries somewhere. I totally agree on that. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me today. I know you don't do a lot of this and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you coming and chatting with your husband today because the dynamic of a husband and wife team in business is unique. And um, people need to understand how hard it is to do, right? Yeah, okay. Will you please tell everybody where they can find you and all your restaurants? Instagram, online, however you want to do. All of the above? Yes. Yeah. And we are in Cranes in uh, Chinatown and Jiwa Singapore in Tyson's Galleria. Okay, great. Excellent. Thank you both for joining me. Thank today. you for having us. Great. So when Chef first got here... Uh, Greg and Chef started talking, and they were talking about the business, what was going on business-wise. And Greg was asking you a bunch of questions about, you know, how you're doing, like the finances of having restaurants right now, not just in the D.C. market, but just given the tenor of what's happening out there after the pandemic. So, you know, I'd like to sort of pick up on that, like, how has it changed for you financially? And feel free to ask questions because your questions are way more nuanced than right. mine based on what you know. Hi. Hi. We were having a conversation about what's going on since early this year. Mm -hmm. For us, uh, January, February, March for us was the best month in the history of the restaurant. Okay. Fantastic. And from April, it's been going down slowly, 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 slowly. And since now, October, November, it's really picking up. Hmm. Like, 15% of the downfall that we had from uh, April until September. The history is that my restaurant opened five weeks before pandemic. Yes. As you very well know. So I believe in throughout pandemic mm -hmm. and everything is flipped. But you know better because you've been long time in the city. I'm only here four or five years and actually three operating. So they always told me, January, February, July, August, brace yourself, you're going to be dead. 
and all those things never account. Well, because I don't think that works. I don't think any of that is true anymore. I mean, January, yes, for a lot of people. Like, not I can't, not for you. That's amazing. I get calls in January. People are like, so dead. It's so dead. I'm like, it's January. <laughs> it's so dead every January. Like, it is January. But then it picks up right away. Like, between, it's, I would think because of where you are with uh, the three day weekend for MLK holiday, tourism, do you think all that, like, I, swoops I think in? There is no explanation that I can give. Okay. The only thing I can give you is I don't have a clue. Okay. <laughs> that, that's the reality because 2021 winter was horrible. January, February was really a struggle mm -hmm. because my staff was asking me, Chef, give me hours. I need hours while you cut me off. Mm. From December, we were super busy and suddenly drop. Mm. So 2022, I'm in December. I'm super busy. I'm bracing myself, telling the people, hey guys, get ready for it. You know what happened in January? You know what it's going to be? It was totally the opposite. Winter 2022 was crazy. Wow. So the only thing I can give you is I don't understand it. Mm. I, would, I would say we experienced the same thing. And, and, and I related to January, February, March were the biggest we had. And then it started tailing off then. Also, the warm weather came. Um, and I think we're fortunate to be in Washington because the tourists, maybe it didn't trail off as much. But I think urban areas, downtown areas, suffered more because nationally, the crime, when the, the heat happened, and, and the country was, again, coming out of a pandemic, and some kids who hadn't gone to school for years, for literally two years, um, there's a lot of misbehavior, not just here in Washington, but all over the country, and people are learning to deal with. And I think the, the average citizen watches that and says, oh, maybe I'll stay home closer tonight. Maybe I'll spend a little less money right now. But uh, I agree, uh, November has turned really positive. Yes, I agree. Same thing. And then we were talking about, you know, the other issue is that you're, you're, you're forced with inflation to charge more money. So you get deceived. Even when you're up in sales, you might not be up in cover counts. And it's so critical for restaurateurs to look at the number of people who are coming into their places mm -hmm. every day, not as dollars are really important, but without the customer, you're only going to get so many dollars from those people. 100%. So how does that change for you now? Same. I, inflation has been coming into us. They charge you transportation. They charge you cost of foods way higher. And in my case, I think we have been reactive. We have mm -hmm. been increasing prices as soon as we were hit by the bottom, and we have been pushing that to the customer side. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to do the effort. Our creative minds need to come with a way to do dishes, create food with less pricey ingredients that are still good because there's humble ingredients that are good, and try to accommodate that because the climate, the financial climate, I don't think it's going to change very soon. No, I mean, once you're here, it's not like things ease down fast. No. And you're talking, especially when we talk about your restaurants, we're talking about expensive ingredients to begin with. You know, you, whether it's truffles, Absolutely. the fish you serve, Absolutely. the Wagyu, like you, you are not serving, you're not just doing burgers. You know, you're doing a very special, um, a, a very special and in, in, in niche menus that require higher priced ingredients. To reinforce that, I'm targeting to the top of the pyramid. And mm -hmm. Not everybody can allow that. And something that it really piqued my attention, we were doing restaurant week in August, 
and we were slow in August, and then we happened to do 500 covers per night in Greece. Wow. A menu that is a 40% or a, yeah, 40% of our regular menu was a $55 versus the regular one for years. Right. And the volume was crazy, and the people was coming. And you know the funny thing, what really fixed my attention that I was expediting food in restaurant week, in every other table, I was sending my celebration cake. It was a birthday, it was an anniversary, so people... An excellent point. Restaurant week to celebrate a $55. That yes. is a special occasion. Yeah. So that really tells you what the financial situation is going on. And I see that with my eyes, and if I don't, if I don't react to that, I don't want to accept the reality in what we need to actually be accommodating to more pockets. Well, I always say with restaurants, um, you know, you can do as a chef what you want to do. Yes. But at the end of the day, if you don't meet people where they are, that, then there's no business, we, right? We do the business for them. Right. They need them. If uh, I had the best restaurant with the best food, but people don't come for it. Right. <laughs> Bye-bye. I think you make an excellent point about the event-driven crowd. I mean, as people work from home more to come out, they need that draw. Mm -hmm. And it's the event. So the restaurants are smart. They're, they're smart guys. Like that. They're out here. They adapt to what's going to bring people in. And they find the right meal. And they find the right meal point price. And they cater to that event. And they make a birthday special with a dessert or a singing waiter or whatever it is that it takes to make right the prime rib. They had that guy who sang acapella, happy birthday. People loved it for years. But uh, it, it is those restaurants that can differentiate themselves that are going to really make it through this tough time because I think it is going to be a tough time for some restaurants. I agree. Because we haven't even talked about labor. I can't get into labor because I have to end the show. Oh. <laughs> It's always fun okay. to be here. You Next have the time, best guests. I know. Next time, I'll bring you back. Thank right. you. Okay. Well, there goes another episode of Industry Night. Thank you so much for joining me today. There is so much going on, not just in the D.C. metro area, but in the hospitality industry in general. Please follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, all the channels, because there is so much happening, and I am doing so many things. The people that I talked with today, Greg Kasten and Pepe and Aisha, are people who really make the history of the hospitality industry work. And their stories are so important. Because when you go down to sit at a restaurant table, you should know what you're in for, not just what's on the plate. So thanks so much for joining me today and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.